Amen, amen. Okay, so we're starting a new sermon series uh, this month, and just calling it uh, OK Google, uh, which is a term that gets said in our house a lot because we have one of these tiny little creepy devices um, called a Google Home Mini that sits in our kitchen. Um, and uh, sometimes we ask it to play our favorite music, uh, which it knows. Um, oftentimes we ask it to play uh, worship music nine and a half times out of ten. It's worship music. The other half per half of a whatever um, is, uh, I'm not good with percentages today, um, whatever that is. Uh, the rest of that is sometimes Disney princess theme songs. Sometimes it's late 90s rap. And sometimes it's uh, classic country or grunge rock from the 2000s. Don't judge me. <laughs> or us. Some of that's Kelly. Um, but we also ask this device to turn, on a, uh, to turn a particular movie on our TV or to turn our living room lights out. It can also a- answer questions like, what time is Top Gun playing at the Monaco on Sunday afternoon? Which if, you know, you want to go do that, that'd be a good thing to do on a Sunday afternoon. Um, Or when were Skittles invented? That's a question that ours has been asked before. Um, This little device can answer these basic questions. However, what we know through, because Google's always data mining and always putting out information, is that people are also asking their Google Home Minis and their search bar on their phone and their computer questions that are much deeper than that. Um, questions about life, about death, about faith, about God, about religion. And can I be honest with you, that terrifies me. That terrifies me. That that people are searching for their answers to these really important, serious questions. And they're finding bad answers. But what's most terrifying for me is that I would argue that for some of them, it's not the first time they've asked the question. They didn't ask it first to Google. Probably. They probably ask it to a real live person at some point in their life, and they were discontent with the answer. Because what happens is oftentimes in the church, we're not prepared to answer life's deepest questions. And when our kids and our teenagers come to us with these questions, or our neighbors, or our friends, we, we don't have, our answers are found lacking. And so I'm going to argue through this month is that we need to have good answers ready to life's deepest questions. We need them for ourselves when we go through our own struggles. We need them for our children and our teens as they grow and mature. We need them for our friends and neighbors when they get hit with a wave of what's life all about. And they start asking questions. So we're going to look uh, four different weeks at questions this month. Today we're going to be looking at why do good people suffer. Next week we're going to look at what happens when we die Uh, Week three, we're going to talk about how can I know God's will for my life. And the fourth week, I'm honestly leaving open right now. I couldn't settle in on anything. And I want to hear from you. So not now. (laughs) That would be weird. Um, But text me, email me, heath at lindsaylane.org. Talk to me on your way out or something. But drop me a line of what questions have you asked in your life? What questions do you have now uh, about faith and life? What questions are your neighbors asking, your kids, whatever? Um, And I'm going to do my best to build that fourth week based on real-life questions that we have today. Um, I won't be able to touch on all of them, of course, but I'm just looking for some ideas from you guys. So, But today, today is is suffering. Um, So let me pray um, and just ask God's blessing again over the Word, and then we'll dive in. Father, we thank you uh, that, as Patrick has said, God, your Word is is truth. And so, God, we pray that today— Um, As I do my best, God, just to pull out the truths that speak to this issue from Genesis all the way through to the end, God, that that you'd help us understand suffering 
Um, God, that we'd be able to help not only ourselves, our kids, and our friends and neighbors, God. Uh, we would all uh, leave this place, God, with a better understanding of what's going on when we suffer. And, and uh, God, just give us hope in the midst of it. And so, Father God, today we ask that you teach us to know you and that you would be with us above all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, why do good people suffer? I heard this question for the first time in the hallways of Ardmore High School as a seventh grader. Uh, there's one thing you need to know about seventh graders. Either they have no confidence or they have all the confidence in the world. There is nothing in between. Amen. And so we had a, a cocky little atheistic uh, seventh grade boy who asked me one day in the hallway between classes, you're a Christian, right? And I said, yeah, <laughs> we're just going. And he asked that question. Why do good people, why, do, why, do, why is evil happening to people that we would consider good? And the scary thing is I didn't have an answer for him. Uh, I just looked at him, and I said, uh, and ah, uh, uh, a lot. But at the end of the day, he just started smiling and walked off because he knew he had got me. He knew he had me and made a fool of me. And if you don't struggle with this question, uh, if you feel confident in, 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 in not wrestling with this, believe me when I say that your unchurched friends and neighbors do. So we need to think through an answer to the question of why do good people suffer? And I want to help you with that today. Three things, three kind of mile markers as you're having this conversation with people that we've got to look at. Uh, the first one, uh, you probably guess it, but is the origin, right? So before we can talk about suffering, we've got to understand the origin. Where does suffering come from? Uh, where does suffering find its beginning? And we have to go back to the beginning. So if you've got a Bible, turn in the uh, Bible to Genesis 1. Again, we're going to be a few different places today because uh, we're kind of looking through the whole Bible to see this. So Genesis chapter 1. If you're familiar with the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, you know that it's this beautiful, uh, just, oh, golly, uh, I mean, God speaks and matter appears, like comes into existence. And then not only does it come into existence, it does what he tells it to do, which is the coolest thing ever. And so as God said, he calls for the land to appear. He calls for mountains to shoot up from the water. He speaks and the waters are filled with fish and sky is filled with birds. From the expanses of the universe down to the DNA of living creatures, God spoke and it appeared. He speaks over a period of, of these, this six-day window. And we get this at the end of that, Genesis 1:31. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Now, it's easy for us to look around at mountains, and uh, one of our families from the first service is fixing to make a trip to the Grand Canyon, right? It's, 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 it's easy for us to look at the beauty of God's creation and go, yeah, of course that's good. Man, it's so, it's so beautiful. And it's a, but I need to remind you, something happened four or five verses earlier before God said it was very good. And God actually made man. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says, Let us make man in our image. God said that. According to our likeness, they'll rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the ground. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Right? And so we are part of that good creation. God created a garden in a place called Eden. And he put the first two humans, and he put them there to live, to rule, and to enjoy the close presence of God forever. And God only gave them one rule. He commanded them not to eat from, from one tree, 
There were many trees in the garden. There was one tree. He called it the tree of knowing good and bad, good and evil. He told them, if you eat from that tree, the, con- the consequence will be death. So Adam and Eve did what we would all do. They had a weird, confusing conversation with a talking reptile. And they broke God's one rule. They ate from the tree. And guess what? Just like the snake told them, they didn't die. Isn't that crazy? They didn't die. But what they began to realize is that when God said that they would surely die if they ate from it, he meant that his original intent for them, all that he had set up for them, his perfection, the lack of sin and darkness and suffering, all of that would die. The things that God never intended to bring into his perfect world would now infiltrate it. So God could not allow sin into his presence, so he sends Adam and Eve out of the garden into the world that is now broken through sin and suffering, now existing, those things existing because of their disobedience. The separation from God would have definitely been hard enough for them to deal with, but then they have kids. I have two boys, Cain and Abel. And through an interaction with God, Cain is filled with such anger and jealousy over his brother that he strikes down his brother in cold blood. Now I want you to think for a minute. Think about the pain that Adam is feeling as a dad. He's mourning the loss of his secondborn Abel. And at the same time, he's frustrated and angry with his firstborn. And at the exact same moment, deep down, he knows that all of this pain was a symptom of his own mistake. Think about what that is for him. And so the same is true for us. In one sense, we can thank great, 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 great grandpappy Adam. For our difficulties today. He's the one. Through his sin, suffering was brought into this world. This is what Paul writes about in the New Testament. Turn to Romans chapter 5. It's in the New Testament, book 5, book 6. Book 6. Numbers are not working well for me today, y'all. I'm struggling. Verse 12. So Romans is written by the Apostle Paul to a church that was gathering in the city of Rome. They were struggling with what under, with understanding what salvation meant to the world. There were Jews and there were non-Jews in Rome, and they were bickering and fighting within the church because they were arguing about what Jesus had really accomplished for both groups. And so chapter 5 is one of the most dense sections of the whole letter that he wrote to them. So we're kind of jumping in the midst of a conversation, but I think it's important for us to, to see this. So Paul writes this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man... And death through sin. In this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. Now, Paul's choppy way of speaking. So let's let's make sure we make sense of this. Paul says that sin entered the world through one man. Who was it? Adam. Okay. Sin entered the world through Adam. But what does he say entered the world through sin? Death. Okay. So Adam opened the door to sin... And when he came in, so did death. I'll never forget the first time I went to my in-law's house that weren't my in-laws then. We were just dating. Kelly and I started dating early in high school and uh, high school sweethearts, I guess. 
And I remember the first time you go over there, uh, married guys in the house, y'all remember that? You're not, <laughs> you're not a wanted guest, right? <laughs> Especially when you're a teenager. Like they, th- their daughter came home, whether it was from, vac- you know, from like for Christmas or whatever, and she brought you too. <laughs> my wife invited me over and I just get this look from my father-in-law. You know what I mean? Like, I wanted her here. I'm glad she's here. You, I don't know. Uh, you, you snuck in the door with her. It's a dumb way. But maybe, like, that's what I think about when I think about, when I think about Paul's interaction here. Paul says, Adam opened the door to sin, and with sin, death snuck into. And when death snuck in, what comes with death is disease, heartache, pain, and suffering. So though Adam opened the door to sin through his own sin, all this other stuff, all this other baggage comes in with it. So Paul seems to be saying that all the junk that we experience on this earth is Adam's fault. And if that's the case, then we can end the sermon and say, God, you are an unjust God. We should not be held accountable for Adam's sin. I wouldn't have eaten the stupid fruit anyway. I'm a meat and potatoes guy. This isn't my fault. This is why Paul not only says that we are responsible because Adam sinned, but he ends with this, because all sinned. Now, there's a duality to this. Adam opened the door to sin, which brought death and into the world as well, and death spread to all people. Paul says, because we are all sinners. So whose fault is it that we experience suffering here on earth? Well, it's Adam's. You can blame him, but it's also yours and it's mine. Adam is responsible because he was the ancient ancestor whom God entrusted with his image. And he just dropped the ball. He's the original sinner, the prototype of the marred image. And we can point our fingers to him and say, this is all your fault, but you are responsible as well because you carry on the same marred image, though you know God desires something more. We are all just like Adam in his sinfulness. We choose our own way over God's way, and that is what the definition of sin is. And sin brings death, and with it, suffering and pain. So it's got, it's, we have to recognize Adam is responsible, but, but so are we. But I've got to add this in here. Because some of you are struggling with this. It doesn't seem from God's word that when we go through suffering, we are to look at individual instances in our past and tie them to those sins. Okay? When, when my wife Kelly had thyroid cancer a few years ago, we did not, because of a healthy view of God's word, we did not view that as a punishment for, for something Kelly had done in her past or because she's just a filthy sinner. God said, you know what you deserve? <laughs> Here's your punishment, thyroid cancer. If you've been through difficult things in your life that are totally out of your control, what you need to know is that that, that, that suffering is an indirect result of your sin. That suffering is. But to tie it to a particular sin or a punishment because of your sin, that seems to not be the way the biblical authors drive home. Now, here's what I'll say. I'm not talking about earthly consequences. Okay? Does the Bible say that murder is a sin? Yeah, 
If you murder someone, will there be earthly consequences? Yeah. But let's not view the jail time of something you were guilty of on the same level as someone with a health issue or someone who lost a child or someone who's going through something that's totally out of their control, right? You see the difference here. I'm not talking about earthly consequences. Those are a direct result of your sin. What I'm saying is the things that are beyond our control, those suffering things, we will not find in God's word, especially on this side of the cross, we will not find evidence that those things are happen to us because of particular sins in our life. And so if you're struggling with, hey, I'm going through something right now and I think God hates me, he doesn't. Are you going through suffering because you're a sinner? Yep, but not because you made a particular sin. Move on and listen to the rest of the message. <laughs> Let's talk about if, it, if it's not punishment. And we've got to know what the purpose is. So if you're a note taker, number one was origin. We need to know the origin. Number two, we've got to know the purpose. So the purpose of suffering is not punishment. Then what in the world is it? So Adam brought suffering into the world through his sin, and it continues in this world because we are all sinners. But why doesn't God just get rid of it like mosquitoes? I just spend a week at the beach. You know how big Florida mosquitoes are? Fort Morgan, Florida mosquitoes? Those are monsters. My brother killed one on his arm and had to go take a shower. <laughs> like, that's gross. But, like, it was that bad. Like, I'd been shot in the arm. It's not in my notes. Y'all can guess that, probably. But there must be something to this. There must be something to suffering that God is, God sees something that we don't see. Flip over a few pages in your Bible to Romans chapter 8. Paul's teaching on what it means to be a believer to the church in Rome is, is coming to this really intense high point by chapter 8. Um, but, but I'll make the argument uh, what we're seeing le has less to do with our salvation in Christ here and has more to do with our sanctification in Christ. Are you familiar with that term? I know some of you may be, but just in case you're not, sanctification is a big fancy word you can impress your friends with. But if you're not familiar with it, here's the definition I've been using for years I think is helpful. I think it's biblical. Sanctification is simply the lifelong process of looking like Jesus. That's what sanctification is. And the reason I love Romans 8, 28 and 29 is that what it shows us is that God is actually involved in that process. Most of my early life, I thought if I want to grow closer to Jesus, I've got to try harder. <laughs> Anybody else? Three of us. Okay, good. That was what I thought. I got to try harder. I got to try harder. I got to try harder. God's holding this little carrot in front of me. Going, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Almost stepped on a cactus. But what we're actually seeing in verses like this is that God is involved in this process very actively. So verse 828 is one of the, most, one of the verses that's been taken out of context more than any other verse and used to just create craziness. Okay, but here I'm going to read it to you and we're going to look at it in a healthy way. Romans 828. Paul says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And people take that and they run with that and go, okay, so God wants good for me, right? And who defines what's good? We do, because we're postmodern Americans, <laughs> or post-postmodern, whatever we are. But there are three major words and phrases. I think if we're, if we're going to understand Romans 8.28, we've got to look at these three. And it's the phrase, all things, good, 
and called. If we understand those three words within their context, I, I believe that we'll get Romans 8, 28. Um, and to see them, we've got to look at verse 29 as well. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So this, word, this verse starts with the word for, which is an indicator to the reader that this is, this is connecting to the verse before it. So what Paul does, in my opinion, is explain for us what is meant by these three words in 28. All this foreknew and predestined stuff, again, are these big fancy words. It's much more simple than it sounds. What this particular verse says is that before the foundation of the world, God purposed that those who would become believers in Christ, he had one ultimate purpose for them, and that was that they look like Jesus. And to put it more simply, God had one plan for believers, sanctification. That's what he had. That's what this verse is saying. So let's add those things. Let's talk that through. So called. Let's start at the end. All things good called. Called is a term Paul used in 28 to reference believers. Paul in the New Testament authors use a ton of words for Christians, uh, followers, disciples, the called, saints, all these other words. But for our conversation, let's define called in verse 28 as believers. So all things work to the good of believers. But what is good? What was the purpose that God was working all things towards? Verse 28 just says our good, and we're left to, to try to define that for ourselves. But how does verse 29 build on that? What is the purpose that God has in verse 29? How does he define good there? He defines it as our sanctification. That's the good that he's working out. And so when we add that, now we're saying all things work to the sanctification of believers. And so let's look at the word all things. You know what that word means in the Greek? Yeah, there's nothing fancy here. Everything. Every single piece of the world around us, every single interaction, every, every single everything. And so let's put our, we had all things work together for the good of those who are called. Let's put it together and let's, let's add these, new, this, these definitions. Everything on earth works together for the sanctification of the believer. Simple literary work there that we're putting verses 28 and 29 together to make sense of it. So the question on the table is, what will God use to make us look like Jesus? Paul just said, all things. God's going to use your family, your coworkers, your friends, your hobbies, your extracurriculars, your experiences as a child, as an adult, as a parent, as a grandparent, the good times in your life, your small group discussions, your personal Bible study time, the time spent in worship with your church family each week. And I hope and pray God uses these simple sermons as well for that end. Your sanctification, making you look like Jesus. But before I ask the next question, I've got to make sure that you get that. Because it's vital before we, like logically, before we touch that. So just give me a simple nod if you agree. Don't yet. Hold on to it. If you agree with the fact that what Paul just said, all things, everything in your life, every single interaction, all those things are working together to make you look more like Jesus. Do you see what Paul said? Nod with me. I didn't see anybody big shakes. Now, since we've all nodded, let me ask another question. Does all things include your suffering? 
Well, it has to, right? Because we just define all things as all things. So it has to involve our suffering. So what that means is that God will use the difficulties you face to refine you like steel through a fire to make you look more like Jesus. But be clear, our sufferings exist because we are filthy sinners. That's why suffering exists. But God is able to use that evil thing that we brought into the world for his own purpose because he's that stinking awesome. That's what our kids are going to be learning this week at VBS. They're going to look at the story of Joseph. If you don't know the story of Joseph, you need to, we'll put you in with some fifth graders or something. You need to learn the story of Joseph. It's at the end of the book of Genesis. Sign your kid up today if you haven't. What we see is that there's all these things that happen to Joseph. Some of them may be the consequences of earthly things, but a lot of it just outside of his control. And all this stuff keeps happening to him, yet he's able to, at the end of his life, say what you meant for evil, God used for good. It's exactly what we're trying to get. God uses our own suffering to make us look like Jesus. And I can, I can say before you, that's more than a theological idea to me. I can testify to that. When I look back at the difficulties in my life, for most of them, I can already see God's hand shaping me through it. I can look back at difficulties, lost uh, or health stuff. I can look at lost loved ones. I can look at uh, broken friendships and broken relationships. I can look back at all that and see, for most of it now, I can see God's hand, how he shaped me through that. Sometimes it takes a few months. To be able to look back and see it, sometimes it takes years. Sometimes for some of you, it takes decades. To be able to look back and see what God was doing. But can we just all admit that some things we experience on this earth are so awful and so horrendous that we may live a long, full life. (laughs) A long, full life. And go to our deathbed before ever seeing, before we can ever fathom seeing God's hand in it. I'm always quick to concede that when I'm having this conversation with people. Just for example, there's 17 families dealing with loss after a shooting in Texas, right? Like, This morning, I read on the news, uh, a guy got away from the police, a convicted murderer out in Texas, uh, broke into a house, shot and killed uh, a man. I think it was was the the father and four children. Like, Like, it's a theological idea that God has a plan through suffering. But like, go tell those families, right? Go tell that family, God has a plan. Just keep your chin up, buddy. Can we just all admit that sometimes you don't want to hear that? Sometimes it's hard to hear that. Sometimes we don't see when you've lost a loved one or you've lost a child or you've been through something so difficult, you look at it and go, I can't imagine how God would grow me through this. Like, I can't. I'm quick to concede that in this argument, okay? I'll be honest. I don't know if in my lifetime we'll see good of some of the things that have happened in my lifetime. However, if most of the suffering that I've endured and that you've endured, well, we actually get to see within a reasonable amount of time how God is using it to grow us. Don't you think that with a heavenly perspective, like being in the presence of God after our death, 
with a thousand years behind us. Don't you think even some of the most heinous, awful things will begin to make sense? I think so. That's the hope I cling to. For some of the things that have happened in my life, it may take till I'm old and gray. And some of the things that have happened in my lifetime, I don't ever expect to see because they were so awful and so terrible. But I do believe that there is a day coming in which my mind in the presence of God, that all of this will make sense. We'll see how God was using these terrible events for his glory and the good of those who were called. Because God is big enough to use all things for our sanctification. And if that's the case, we've got to trust him more than what we see before us with our eyes. This is a perspective shift. It needs to happen. I want to talk more about perspective. That's actually point number three. Origin, purpose, perspective. If we know that this is true, and many of you did before you came in here, and if you didn't now, you know that God's working all this suffering for a good. Why is it that we can't be patient to see God's hand? Usually once we see how God is using our suffering, it allows us to cope with it, doesn't it? It allows us to kind of, Oh, okay. I see now. It allows us to move on in many ways, move past it. But what is it that fights against that patience? I believe there are two lies that we're believing that hinder a proper perspective. The first we've already somewhat addressed, but let's wrap it up in a bow and and serve it up. Uh, One lie that, that hinders our proper perspective is we believe we don't deserve it. There's a term that gets used quite often to speak of uh, false teachers in the world who are convincing people by the droves that if they'll have enough faith in Jesus, that he'll give them an endless bank account. He'll give them a nice car, nicer than anybody else around. He'll give them a huge house, a smoking hot wife, popularity, career success, no diseases, no pain, nothing bad in your life. We've labeled that the prosperity gospel. The reason we can call these these pastors and teachers, false teachers, is because this idea is totally refuted by the Bible and the earliest disciples who didn't have money. Some of them were homeless. They had diseases. They were not popular. They were not well-to-do. Most of them were persecuted heavily for their beliefs in Christ and their faith. And some of them were even killed. So A plus B does not equal C there, right? The only argument you can make is that they must have lacked faith in Jesus, and I'm not ready to make that argument uh, that that uh, that Peter and Paul and James and those guys who experienced awful deaths and glorified God all the way up to the end through Christ, uh, that they lacked faith. Um, I don't believe they lacked faith. I believe they had faith in Jesus and they went through the suffering anyway because they knew they were still sinners in a fallen world and God had a bigger purpose working behind the scenes. Most of us in the room have been around false teaching or have seen this and can recognize it and aren't being led astray. But I think there's something deeper going on um, in this idea that, that I know I've been guilty of buying into. Kelly and I read something a few years ago that changed our perspective um, on this idea. The author of, I can't remember if it was a pastor, but it was, it was a message or an article, but it talked about the reverse prosperity gospel, which I never 
like heard of and really haven't heard of it much since. And, but it's this idea, most of us do not expect our faith to be rewarded by God by giving us good things, right? We don't. Like, I don't expect because I get up here and preach today that I'm going to find $30 in my wallet when I get home. It'd be sweet. Please, Lord. But I don't expect it. I don't expect that. Right? I don't expect good things to come. Some of it, and, most of, and most of us would probably agree with that. But what I found in my own life, transparent pastor moment, is that I oftentimes do expect my faith to be rewarded by God by keeping bad things from happening to me and my family. When Kelly and I read that, that this this prosper this reverse prosperity gospel, it, we both really resonated with it. And honestly, it broke our hearts. Because when we when I experienced suffering, I, I would say things like you do, why me, God? Haven't I served you? Haven't I loved you? I go to church. I read my Bible. I'm volunteering for VBS, for goodness sake. I do a lot more stuff for you than a lot of other people do. Why me? You see, we come to expect certain things of God because we are believers. We, we expect God to protect our rights, to protect our marriage, to protect our children from harm. God, you're going to keep all the bad things that other people deserve from happening to me because I'm a believer. Church, this is the reverse prosperity gospel, and it's just as dangerous as the forward one. You see, if you can find that argument in the Bible, I'll preach it next Sunday, but you're not going to find it. As believers, we are subject to the same suffering as unbelievers on this broken down earth. It's hard to take. But I believe it's hindering a lot of us from seeing God's hand in our suffering. Because we don't think we deserve it. The second lie that we believe is, we believe suffering is the worst. We go through difficulties that are certainly hard. And I don't want to downplay what many of you have been through. But I'm going to make a statement that's, if you've been through difficulties, you're going to get mad at me for a second. But let me explain it before you throw tomatoes, okay? Listen to me. This earthly suffering is nothing. This earthly suffering is nothing. If you think the things we endure here because of our sin is bad, read what the Bible says about eternity. The Bible seems to say that there is a real place called hell. And it'll be an eternal place for those who die without having trusted in Christ. And I get asked all the time, Heath, what's what's hell going to be like? Well, the Bible speaks figuratively of it, or literally, we don't really know, but a lot of images. Darkness, fire, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. What does that mean? I don't know. But it sounds bad, doesn't it? (laughs) It sounds like the worst moment of our earthly suffering. Darkness. We feel darkness. Fire. It feels like our, our, our heart and our soul is on fire as we're going through suffering. It, we, we, feel, we feel these things. There, there's weeping. There's gnashing of teeth. This is, this is what, but l- listen to me. But it's eternal. Hell is a just yet terrible and eternal punishment for our sin. 
And it's so much worse than anything we can endure here because it is eternal and it involves the lack of the presence of God. Those two things. The suffering we experience on this earth, yes, stinks. And it's painful and it's hard. But we know there's an end coming somewhere down the road and God promises us his presence as he did to Joseph through the midst of it. But here's the good news. If you are in Christ, this doesn't await you. This eternal place of punishment is not your future. So this suffering that we're experiencing here on the earth is the worst thing you will ever endure. Now, I know to some of you, you're like, still hard, Heath. I, yes, but this is how Paul encouraged the church in a city called Corinth. This is certain uh, verse 4, beginning of verse 16. Again, we're jumping in the middle of a conversation here. But Paul has just talked about all the difficulties that he's faced. He says, therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day, for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. For we know that if our earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens not made with hands. And before you think, so when Paul says our momentary light affliction, he's talking about earthly suffering. And before y'all think Paul is some college-age, preppy, entitled kid who's never been through hardships. I can hear your thoughts already. He ain't lived my life. This sucker, as he's pursuing God, has been shipwrecked multiple times. Like just ship, like on a ship, going to preach the gospel, he gets shipwrecked. Having to float up to sea, onto the shore. He's been arrested multiple times, wrote most of his letters from prison. And one time was even stoned to the point that they thought he was dead and maybe he was and was left there. And then he <gasps> took one deep breath and got up. So, so the God knows suffering. The God knows suffering. Yet in the midst of all of that and hundreds of other things that no doubt happened in his life that there wasn't room to write about, he can say our momentary light affliction. Why? Because Paul had a proper view of the afterlife, right? He knew that what he was enduring here for the sake of Jesus was nothing compared to what Jesus had saved him from. Do you see that in light of that eternal punishment, earthly suffering, while difficult to endure for sure, is less than we actually deserve? For those of us in Christ who go through suffering, instead of crying out why to God and shaking our fist, throwing curse words at the ceiling, we should be crying out thank you and shaking our head at what he allows us to overcome through the blood of Jesus. And I want to ask, how would it change the way we view the suffering that we go through if we held it in comparison to the punishment we deserve that was taken by Jesus on our behalf? That's a perspective shift, isn't it? So we're going to think rightly about suffering. We've got to think origin. We've got to think purpose. We've got to think perspective. And so I know for some of you, uh, when it comes to suffering, maybe you haven't been experiencing much of it. 
or for some of you, maybe the past few months have been like a whirlwind of suffering. And most of us probably fall somewhere on the spectrum between. Let me remind you, your suffering is not a direct punishment for your sin, but is something we endure because humanity sinned and continues to sin. Some of you may be feeling like God is punishing you for a past sin. You may want to spend time during this last song praying to God about what you're feeling and call on him to give you peace knowing that what you are going through is because of humanity's sin, not necessarily a particular sin you committed. God will give you peace in that. Some of you have been through some tough stuff and, and don't understand why. What we've seen through God's word is that God does have a plan to use this terrible thing that we brought into the world for your good. He's working all things for our sanctification. You may want to spend time worshiping a God who loves you enough to not abandon you in your suffering, but to see you through it with purpose and meaning on the other side. But here's the hard part of that prayer. So we also have to pray, even if we don't see the result anytime soon. That's what's hard. Others of you may have a perspective issue, which was my problem with this sermon. It's the thing that got me. I still sometimes struggle when I go through difficulties wanting to yell at God or fight with him because I don't feel like he rescued me in the way that I wanted to be rescued. But this message has been the reminder to me that what I endure here on this earth as I'm pursuing Christ is nothing compared to what I would endure had he not saved me. So this morning, my next step is simply to worship God, thanking him that he loved me that much. You may want to do the same. But I also want to say if you're not in Christ, if you've not trusted in Jesus as your Savior, the suffering you experience on this earth, though it seems pretty terrible, is actually nothing compared to the darkness and pain of eter eternal separation from God in a real place called hell. But as much as the Bible speaks about the reality of hell, the Bible also speaks of the reality that you can trust in Jesus as your Savior today and be rescued from that. You don't have to accept that outcome for your life. You can turn from your sin to Jesus today. We actually want to help you do that. We're going to sing one more song. Uh, if you want to sing or pray right where you are as, as your response today, you can do it. If you want to come and kneel at the front, voice a prayer to God for yourself or for someone else. Um, the difference is, is your church family sees you up front and they voice a prayer to you. as well. Even if they don't know your name, they, they still pray for you. And if you admit that you're not a believer and you need to be saved today, I'm going to stand back at the back next to the sound booth. Um, you can just come see me, and I would love to help you process through what it looks like to trust in Jesus as your Savior, to make that decision today and have your, your salvation finally and fully secure in Christ. I'm going to say a prayer, and then Patrick and, and the team will lead us uh, in our response time. Father, we love you, and God, we do thank you for your word. God, we thank you that, um, that in your word, God, we can find answers to hard questions. Um, God, I pray that you just help us, God, to process through this ourselves. God, help us to process through it with our, our children and teenagers, God, as they get older um, in our church. And God, help us to process through this with our friends and neighbors, God, who may not even know you. God, help us to, to draw our eyes to the origin and the purpose and the perspective that we need, God, to have this conversation logically and spiritually. Father, be with this time of response. God, help us to to, to lay down before you the things that need to be laid down, God. Help us to take up the things that need to be taken up in your presence. And um, God, just give us wisdom to make the right decisions regarding our next steps today. Uh, we trust you with all this.
It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Guys, let's stand. You can respond as God leads you.